So uh, this part of the spiral of the work that reconnects we call uh, seeing with new eyes, allowing ourselves to see uh, our lives, our world afresh. So that song's perfect for that. And uh, I would like to share some reflections with you about this planet moment that we're living that have been very much at the heart of my uh, gladness at being alive and uh, the guidance I find and how I want to use this precious time. So we're given an incredible blessing. Uh, and I think I mentioned that in that first mindfulness of breathing in and breathing out, that we can actually put our minds, we can choose where we want to put our mind. We can choose what we want to give weight to. We can choose what we want to uh, put effort in. Uh, we can't choose whether we're going to succeed or not. Uh, we can't choose the color of our eyes. Uh, we can't choose what's going to uh, happen tomorrow, but we can choose uh, where we put our attention now. And what so this has been very uh, the importance of this for our whole world uh, came home to me in writing the book out there called Active Hope. Um, oh, I like the subtitle so much. Yeah, how to face the mess we're in without going crazy. I actually wanted that to be the title, but. <laughs> They said it was too many words. <laughs> and uh, so uh, with my co-author, Chris Johnston, a uh, wonderful uh, physician, Bodhisattva, uh, in England, moved up to Scotland while we were writing it. And we wrote it by Skype. So Joanna, uh, don't knock all modern technology. <laughs> yeah, because that... Skype is wonderful. <laughs> anyway. So what became clear for us, a couple of things right away as we uh, sat down together on opposite sides of the planet. Uh, what was, first of all, uh, what hope is? And uh, you want to know? Yeah, hope is not something you have. It's something you do. And so you can uh, have active, be an active hope, act with active hope, which, which is what you do, even when you're feeling hopeless. It's true. I've tried it. <laughs> and you can. I think that there are many gold medal winners who felt it was hopeless and then did it anyway. So that's... Uh, the other thing that occurred to us that was kind of uh, came clearer for us was that uh, we can choose uh, what story we get behind, what interpretation of our world scene, of what's going on today, we choose 
to get behind. What, how we understand the reality of our world today. And that there seem to be maybe dozens and dozens of these versions of reality, but they fall into, we found, uh, three main stories. And one is business as usual, and that's what you hear from most folks. The second is the great unraveling. That's the, hear that from quite a few too, and then the story of the great turning. I want to just lay these out for you because they've made such a difference in my life. And uh, the tools that we will acquire in the, and that you've been acquiring all your life can kick in with great relevance here. So business as usual is, of course, uh, the politically approved scene of late stage capitalism or the industrial growth society and it's defined by uh, economic growth. So this is very clear to get clear what we mean by growth because once you start to question that publicly, it's hard to get elected even as dog catcher. <laughs> so it's um, <laughs> growth in what? Beauty, wisdom, health, creativity. So when they talk about a growth economy, what do they mean? Well, not just my money or your money, but uh, the corporate profits of publicly traded corporations. And that's what, even if they talk about triple bottom line, that's what of uh, social equity and <coughs> ecological health and profits, profits trumps it all. So this is the story this is business as usual of that we hear from our political leaders. I'm telling you, the, you, uh, you know all this, but it's just good to reflect, just take a minute to reflect on this together so that we can see how shaky it is. So all the politicians, most of all, yeah, anybody who wants to get elected, um, the uh, corporate leaders, the uh, military, the media. So that's a lot of voices. The message we get is overwhelming to the point where it can seem normal, to the point where we, it does not seem ludicrous and suicidal. Though there are those brave economists like David Corton, who we actually call it the suicide economy. Because if you let corporate profits trump every other consideration of health, of uh, 
survival of an ecosystem, of the acidification of the ocean, of there being enough oxygen made by the plankton, that is nothing compared to this huge inertia. And this is uh, profits made uh, by uh, and some of my most respected Buddhist teachers see that as profits made by institutionalized forms of the three sources of suffering. Greed, hatred, and delusion. So you could say hatred or aggression, the institutionalized form of that is our military machine. And that's in very good health. We are spending more on nuclear weapons and their modernization than at any time during the Cold War, believe it or not. That's helped by a revolving door with the Pentagon and the weapons industry. And institutionalized forms of um, greed. That's a beautiful way of thinking of our consumer society that has to keep going by making us feel needy, that we never have enough, that billions of dollars in advertising devoted to making us believe that we don't look right, that we don't smell right, that we don't dress right, that we don't have the right car, that we don't have the right house, that we don't And this is, makes us kind of crazy, of course. So this business as usual. And then uh, what's the institutionalized form of delusion or ignorance? The media or commercial corporate controlled media. Denial. What? Denial. Yeah. Yeah, whipping that up. Yeah. So uh, that's the... That's one of the stories, and we can choose to uh, see that, name it uh, for what it is. Actually, in our, my books, I don't use the word capitalism uh, so much because there are political economies, nations that following that pattern that do not call themselves capitalists. But they are industrial, but they're committed to industrial growth. So that that we, if we see it, then we can say maybe that's not what we want to pursue. But that's what we hear the most. And then the second one, I owe that term, the great unraveling, also to that same economist, David Corton. And... Uh, he calls it a suicide economy because, and that's another, that's the other sort of pair of glasses by which you look at the systems today. It's just because it is devouring the physical, natural, ecological basis of its own existence. Yeah. And I like the term the great unraveling, because it doesn't 
systems, cultural or biological or ecological, they just don't just fall over dead. They begin to come apart. They begin to unravel. They begin to lose their complexity, their coherence, their responsiveness. And that too seems to be increasing, accelerating. And then there's a third. And the third was also a name of a book by the same economist, David Corton, The Great Turning. It's actually, most people involved in The Great Turning don't call it that. But they're all over the world. There are hundreds of millions of them. They are people in all walks of life who are concerned about their world, concerned about the health of their land, of their society, of their country, and doing something about it, doing something about the ongoingness of life. So there's a transition going on, a transition from the industrial growth society business as usual, to a life-sustaining society. And each one of us is alive at this time. Oh, what I'd give to have you feel a shock of surprise and gratitude just at that. That without any special conniving on your part, that you are here for this most momentous moment for life on earth. Because surely when you hear those who are telling us about the great unraveling, which is they, these are people who dare to see what the industrial growth society is uh, costing us. And it's costing us the world. So uh, I told you how many people we hear about the business as usual. And where do we hear about the great unraveling? We hear about that from the scientists, those who haven't been bought. Most of them haven't been bought. We hear about it from the journalists who haven't been bought, the independent journalists, we hear about it from the activists who are going out there often working night and day with tremendous urgency. And we're getting that you are hearing their pleas and they're part of who we are in this room too today. So I'd like to pause for a moment so this is such an incredible moment for us to be alive. It's almost as if we had, coming from uh, through the centuries on the human journey, with the segmented spinal column and the front of the head eyes and the opposable thumbs that we've evolved, that we've land here now at a time when 
our lives could make such a difference. Because that's when you get when you get a systems that are very much out of uh, balance, then it doesn't take so much. It takes a kick to, uh, particularly when it's coordinated, to help move it in a new direction. So this transition to a life-sustaining society. Uh, Let's pause a minute just to think about that. The social thinkers that have uh, informed me the most about that have pointed out that this is a revolution and that this revolution is equally massive uh, to the other two revolutions that we know about in human history, fully as same magnitude and scope, equal magnitude and scope, as that revolution when we, after millions of years, nomadic wandering, hunting and, hunting and gathering in small groups across the face of Gaia, we settled down. And settled down and began to cultivate and grow a surplus and build cities and build temples and granaries and trade and learn to write and build civilization. That changed everything for us. It changed our relation to the earth, our relation to our hands, our relationships to each other. And there wasn't a shift that big until just 300 years ago, even though that was in the late Neolithic 10,000 years ago. But something that big happened 300 years ago in England. What was it? The Industrial Revolution. And that harnessing uh, for steam and then fossil fuels and coal and the mines and the mills and the factories, the enclosures bringing people down into the cities, unleashing the power of industry, needing to reach abroad to other lands to get the resources and to find the markets and develop the colonial era That changed everything too, didn't it? Boy. It changed the pace of our lives. It changed our relation to the natural world big time. It changed the family pattern. Brought us the nuclear family. It changed different kinds of... changed our schooling. Changed our language. It changed our concepts of what we need and how we organize, and what we deserve, and what we need to control, and what we can own. And it's just now, in our time, in the last years of the 20th century, these early years of the third millennium, that we're finding ourselves engaged in a revolution 
as big as that, as big as those two. The first person that I heard talk about this was actually 40 years ago under Nixon. He was the first director of the Environmental Protection Agency, William Ruckel's house. And he said, what we must do now is make a revolution as big as those two. And the revolution, the agricultural one, took centuries. And the industrial revolution took generations, sometimes just decades in transfer of technology. And now this revolution will have to be two things. It will have to be conscious, something we choose, and will have to happen in just a few years. And there are a lot of us choosing that. There are a lot of people around the world who don't even think of the word the great turning. Actually, some people call it the ecological revolution, the sustainability revolution. But it's big. And then there's another thing about it is that Although it's a mammoth revolution and thrilling to think about, there's no way for us now to know whether we can pull it off. It's sort of like what I called your attention to around the Shambhala prophecy, to get used to living in uncertainty and be glad for it because if without the uncertainty, your willingness to live with it to find the value in not knowing is like a key you put in the lock to walk through that door with all your wits around about you and your flexibility and your readiness to see what you want to do and who you want to work with. I'm looking at my watch because I uh, want to take a moment uh, to have you check with your neighbor. Um, I'm a, a quick little, a quick little uh, open sentence. Can you do that? Yeah, I mean, it'll sink. It'll sink in better. All right. So find a partner you can face. Well, hi. Hello. 